Chapter Four of *The Men in the Walls* by William Tin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four. He was on the other side. He was in monster territory. He was surrounded by the strange monster light, the incredible monster world. The burrows, mankind, everything familiar lay behind him. Panic rose from his stomach and into his throat like vomit. Don't look up. Eyes down. Eyes down. Or you're likely to freeze right where you are. Stay close to the wall. Keep your eyes on the wall and move along it. Turn right and move along the wall. Move fast. Eric turned. He felt the wall brush his right shoulder. He began to run keeping his eyes down, touching the wall with his shoulder at regular intervals. He ran as fast as he possibly could, urging his muscles fiercely on. As he ran, he counted the steps to himself. Twenty paces. Where did the light come from? It was everywhere. It glowed so. It was white, white. Twenty-five paces. Touch the wall with your shoulder. Don't above everything don't wander away from the wall thirty paces in light like this you had no need of the glow lamp it was almost too bright to see in thirty-five paces the floor was not like a burrow floor it was flat and very hard so was the wall flat and hard and straight forty paces run and keep your eyes down run keep touching the wall with your shoulder Move fast, but keep your eyes down. Don't look up. Forty-five paces. He almost smashed into the structure he had been told about, but his reflexes and the warnings he had received swung him to the left and along it just in time. It was a different color than the wall, he noted, and a different textured material. Keep your eyes down. Don't look up. He came to an entrance, like the beginning of a small burrow. Don't go in that first entrance, Eric. You pass it by. He began to count again as he ran. Twenty-three paces more, and there was another entrance, a much higher, wider one. He darted inside. It'll be darker at first. The walls will soak up light from your glow lamp. Eric paused, gasping. He was grateful for the sucking darkness. After that terrible alien white light, the gloom was friendly, reminiscent of the familiar burrows now so horribly far away. He could afford to take a breath at this point, he knew. The first, the worst part, was over. He wasn't out in the open any more. He had emerged into monster territory. He had run fast, following instructions until he was safely under cover again. He was still alive. The worst was over. Nothing else would be as bad as this. Monster territory. It lay behind him, bathed in its own peculiar light. Now, why not? Now, when he was in a safe place of comparative safety, he could take a chance. He wanted to take a chance. He turned gingerly, fearfully. He raised his eyes. He looked. 
The cry that tore from his lips was completely involuntary and frightened him almost as much as what he saw. He shut his eyes and threw himself down and sideways. He lay where he had fallen for a long while, almost paralyzed. It couldn't be. He hadn't seen it. Nothing was that high. Nothing ran on and on for such incredible distances. After a time he opened his eyes again, keeping them carefully focused on the dark near him. The gloom in this covered place had diminished somewhat, as his eyes had grown more accustomed to it. Yellowish light from his glow lamp was providing illumination now. He could make out the walls, about as far apart from each other as those in a burrow, but unlike a burrow's walls, oddly straight and at right angles to the floor and ceiling. Far off there was an immense patch of darkness. The burrow will open out into a great big space, a real big and real dark space. What was this place, he wondered? What was it to the monsters? He had to take another look behind into the open. One more quick look. He was going to be Eric the Eye, and I should be able to look at anything. He had to take another look. But guardedly, guardedly, Eric turned again, opening his eyes a little at a time. He clamped his teeth together so as not to cry out. Even so, he almost did. He shut his eyes quickly, waited, then opened them again. Bit by bit, effort by effort, he found he was able to look into the great open whiteness without losing control of himself. It was upsetting, overpowering, but if he didn't look too long at any one time, he could stand it. Distance, enormous, elongated, unbelievable distance. Space upon space upon space, that white light bathing it all. Space far ahead, space on all sides, space going on and on, until it seemed to have no end to it at all. But there, fantastically far off, there was an end. There was a wall, a wall made by giants that finally sealed off the tremendous space. It rose hugely from that flat, huge floor and disappeared somewhere far overhead. And in between, once you could stand to look at it this much, in between there were objects, enormous objects, dwarfed only by the greatness of the space which surrounded them, enormous, terribly alien objects, objects like nothing you had ever imagined. No, that wasn't quite true. That thing over there, Eric recognized it. A great squat thing like a full knapsack without the straps. Since early boyhood, many was the time he had heard it described by warriors back from an expedition into monster territory. There was food in that sack, and the others like it. Enough food in that one sack to feed the entire population of mankind for unnumbered Olang Zines. A different kind of food in each sack. 
No spear point possessed by mankind would cut through the fabric of its container, not near the bottom where it was thickest. Warriors had to climb about halfway up the sack, Eric knew, before they could find a place thin enough to carve themselves an entrance. Then the lumps of food would be lowered from man to man, all the way down the sack, warriors clinging to precarious handholds every few paces. Once the pile on the floor was great enough, they would clamber down and fill their specially large food expedition knapsacks. Then back to the burrows and to the women who alone possessed the lore of determining whether the food was fit for consumption and of preparing it if it were. That's where he would be at this moment, on that sack, cutting a hole in it, if he'd chosen a first-category theft like most other youths. He'd be cutting a hole, scooping out a handful of food, any quantity, no matter how small, was acceptable as an initiatory theft, and be prepared to go home to plaudits from the women and acceptance from the men. He'd be engaged in a normal, socially acceptable endeavor. Instead of which... He found that he was able to stare at the monster room now from under the cover of his hiding place, with only a slight feeling of nausea. Well, that in itself was an achievement. After only a short time, here he was, able to look around and estimate the nature of monster goods like the most experienced warrior. He couldn't look up too high as yet, but what warrior could? Well and good, but this wasn't getting him anywhere. He didn't have a normal theft to make. His was third category, monster souvenirs. Eric turned and faced the darkness again. He walked rapidly forward into the straight-walled burrow, the glow lamp on his forehead lighting a yellow path. Ahead of him the great black space grew steadily larger as he pushed towards it. Everything about his theft, his initiation into manhood, was extraordinary. Thomas the Trap-Smasher telling the women about his special talents, so that he would be accorded a vision and a name which would fit with them. Visions were supposed to come from the ancestors through the ancestor science of the record machine. Nobody was supposed to have the slightest idea in advance of what the vision would be. That was all up to the ancestors and their mysterious plans for their descendants. Was it possible, was it conceivable, that all visions and names were prearranged, that the record machine was set in advance for every initiation? Where did that leave religion? If that were so, how could you continue to believe in logic, in cause and effect? And having someone, a stranger at that, help you make your theft? A theft was supposed to be purely and simply a test of your male potential. By definition, it was something you did alone. But if you could accept the concept of prearranged visions, why not prearranged thefts? Eric shook his head. He was getting into very dark corridors mentally. His world was turning into sheer confusion. But one thing he knew. Making an arrangement with a stranger, as his uncle had done, was definitely an act contrary to all the laws and practices of mankind. Thomas's uncertain speech had underlined that fact, 
It was, well, it was wrong. Yet his uncle was the greatest man in all mankind, so far as Eric was concerned. Thomas the Trap Smasher could do no wrong. But Thomas the Trap Smasher was evidently leaning toward alien science. Alien science was wrong. But again, on the other hand, his parents, according to the Trap Smasher, his father and his mother had been alien sciencers. Ah, too much. There was just too much to work out. There was too much he didn't know. He'd better concentrate on his theft. The strange burrow had come to an end. The hairs rose on the back of his neck as he walked into the great dark area and sensed enormous black heights above him. He began to hurry, turning every once in a while to make certain that he was staying in a straight line with the light from the entrance. Here his forehead glow lamp was almost no use at all. He didn't like this place. It felt almost like being out in the open. What, he wondered again feverishly, was this structure in the world of the monsters? What function did it have? He was not sure he wanted to know. Eric was running by the time he came to the end of the open space. He hit the wall so hard that he was knocked over backwards. For a moment he was badly frightened. Then he realized what had happened. He hadn't taken his bearings for a while. He must have moved off at an angle. Groping along the wall with extended arms, he found the entrance to the low burrow at last. It was quite low. He had to bend his knees and duck his head as he went through it. It was an unpleasantly narrow little corridor. But then there was an opening on his right, the fork his uncle had told him about, and he turned into it with relief. He had arrived. There was a burst of light from a group of glow lamps. And there were strangers. There were several strangers here. Three of them. No, four. No, five. They squatted in a corner of this large square burrow, three of them talking earnestly, the other two engaged in some incomprehensible task with materials that were mostly unfamiliar. All of them leaped to their feet as he trotted in and deployed instantly in a wide semicircle facing him. Eric wished desperately he had been holding two heavy spears instead of the single light one. With two heavy spears you had both a shield and a dangerous offensive weapon. A light spear was good for a single cast, and that was that. He held it, nevertheless, in the throwing position above his shoulder, and glared fiercely as a warrior of mankind should. If he had to throw, he decided, he would spring to one side immediately afterward and try to pluck the two heavy spears from his backsling. But if they rushed him now— "'Who are you?' asked a strong-faced, middle-aged man in the center of the semicircle, his spear throbbing in an upraised arm. "'What's your name? What's your people?' "'Eric the Only,' Eric told him quickly. Then he remembered to add, "'I'm destined to be Eric the Eye. My people are mankind.' "'He's expected one of us.' The middle-aged man told the others, who immediately relaxed, slung their spears, and went back to what they had been doing. "'Welcome, Eric the Only of Mankind. Put up your spear and sit with us. I am Arthur the Organizer.' 
Eric gingerly dropped his spear into the backsling. He studied the stranger. A man about as old as his uncle, and not nearly as hefty, although well-muscled enough for normal warlike purposes. He wore the loin straps of a full warrior, but, as if these were not enough honor for a man, he also wore straps laced about his chest and across his shoulders, though he was carrying no knapsack. This was the fashion of many strangers, Eric knew, as was the strap at the back of the head that held the hair in a tight tail away from the eyes, instead of letting it hang wild and free, as the hair of a warrior should. And the straps were decorated with odd, incised designs, another weak and unmanly stranger fashion. Who but strangers, Eric thought contemptuously, would group up in so an alien place without setting sentries at either end of their burrow. Truly, mankind had good reason to despise them. But this man was a leader, he realized, a born leader, with an even more assured air than Thomas the Trap Smasher, captain of the best band in all mankind. He was studying Eric in turn, with eyes that weighed carefully, and then, having decided on the measure, made a definite placement fitting Eric permanently into this plan or that plan. He looked like a man whose head was full of many plans, each one evolving inexorably through action to a predetermined end. He took Eric's arm companionably, and led him to where the others squatted and talked and worked. This was no tribal burrow of any sort. It was quite apparently a field headquarters, and Arthur the organizer was commander-in-chief. "'I met your uncle,' he told Eric, "'about a dozen Olang Zines ago when he came to us on a trading expedition. Back in our burrows, I mean. A fine man, your uncle, very progressive. He's attended our secret meetings regularly, and there's going to be an important place for him in the great burrows we will dig in the new world we are making. He reminds me a lot of your father.' But so do you, my boy, so do you. Did you know my father? Arthur, the organizer, smiled and nodded. Very well. He could have been a great man. He gave his life for the cause. Who among us will ever forget Eric the... the... Eric the storekeeper or something, wasn't it? The storm-room stormer. His name was Eric the storm-room stormer. Yes, of course. Eric the Storm Room Stormer. An unforgettable name with us, and an unforgettable man. But that's another story. We'll talk about it some other time. You'll have to be getting back to your uncle very soon. He picked up a flat board covered with odd markings and studied it with his glow lamp. How do you like that? One of the men, working with the unfamiliar materials, muttered to his neighbor. You ask him his people, and he says, Mankind, mankind. The other men chuckled. A front burrow tribe, what the hell do you expect? Sophistication? Each and every front burrow tribe calls itself mankind. As far as these primitives are concerned, the human race stops at their outermost burrow. Your tribe, my tribe, you know what they call us? Strangers. In their eyes, there's not too much difference between us and the monsters. That's what I mean. They don't see us as fellow men. 
They are narrow-minded savages. Who needs them? Arthur the organizer glanced at Eric's face. He turned sharply to the man who had spoken last. I'll tell you who needs them, Walter, he said. The cause needs them. If the front borough tribes are with us, it means our main lines of supply to monster territories are kept open. But we need every fighter we can get, no matter how primitive. Every single tribe has to be with us if alien science is to be the dominant religion of the boroughs, if we're to avoid the fiasco of the last uprising. We need front borough men for their hunting, foraging skills, and back borough men for their civilized skills. We need everybody in this thing, especially now. The man called Walter put down his work and scowled at Eric dubiously. He seemed to be totally unconvinced. These arrogant back burrowers with their ornamented straps and unmilitary manners, men from different tribes sitting around and talking when, if they had any sense of propriety at all, they should be killing each other. Suddenly the floor shook under him. He almost fell. He staggered back and forth, trying to grab at the spears in his backsling. He finally got used to it, managed to find a solid footing in the upheaval. The spear he held vibrated in his hand. From far away came a series of ear-splitting thumps. The floor swung to their rhythm. "'What is it?' he cried, turning to Arthur. "'What's going on?' "'You've never heard a monster walking before?' the organizer asked him unbelievingly. "'That's right. This is your theft, your first time out.' It's a monster, boy. A monster's moving around in the monster larder, doing whatever monsters do. They have a right, you know, he added with a smile. It's their larder. We're just uh, visitors. Eric noted that none of the others seemed particularly concerned. He drew a deep breath and reslung his spear. How the floor and the walls shook! What a fantastic, enormous creature that must be. As an apprentice warrior, he had often stood with the rear guard on the other side of the doorway to monster territory while the band went in to steal for mankind. A few times there had been heavy thumping noises off in the distance, and the walls of the burrow had quivered slightly, but not like this. It had never been remotely as awesome as this. He raised his eyes to the straight, flat ceiling of the burrow above them. He remembered the dark space further back stretching up limitlessly. And this, he said aloud, this structure we're in, what is this to them? Arthur the organizer shrugged. A piece of monster furniture, something they use for something or other. We're in one of the open spaces they always leave in the bases of their furniture. Makes the furniture lighter, easier to move around, I guess. He listened for a moment as the thumps drifted further away and then died out. Well, let's get down to business. Eric, this is Walter the Weapon Seeker. Walter the Weapon Seeker of the Mixamillion people. Walter, what do you have for Eric's tribe, for, uh, mankind? I hate to give anything even halfway good to a front burrow tribe, the squatty man muttered. No matter how much you explain it to them, they always use it wrong. They botch it up every single time. 
<sighs> Let's see. This should be simple enough. He rummaged in the pile of strange stuff in front of him and picked up a small red jelly-like blob. All you do, he explained, is to tear off a pinch with your fingers, just a pinch at a time, no more. Then spit on it and throw it. After you spit on it, get it out of your hands fast. Throw it as fast and as far as you can. Do you think you can remember that? Yes. Eric took the red blob from him and stared at it in puzzlement. There was a strange, irritating odor. It made his nose itch slightly. But what happens? What does it do? That's not your worry, boy, Arthur the organizer told him. Your uncle will know when to use it. You have your third category theft, a monster souvenir that no one in your tribe has ever seen before. It should make them sit up and take notice. And tell your uncle to bring his band to my burrow three days, three sleep periods from now. That will be the last time we meet before the rising. Tell him to bring them armed with every last spear they can carry. Eric nodded weakly. There were so many complex, incomprehensible things going on. The world was a bigger, more active place than he had ever imagined. He watched Arthur the Organizer add a mark to the flat board on which many symbols were scratched. This was another stranger practice, made necessary he knew by the weak stranger memory so inferior to that of mankind. The weapon-seeker leaped up and stopped him as he was about to put the red blob into his knapsack. "'Nothing wet in there?' Walter demanded, opening the bag and rummaging about in Eric's belongings. "'No water?' Remember, get this stuff wet and you're done for. Mankind keeps its water in canteens, Eric explained irritably. We keep it here. He pointed to the sloshing pouch at his hip, not splashing around loosely with our provisions. He swung the full knapsack on his back and stepped away with stiff dignity. Arthur, the organizer, accompanied him to the end of the burrow. Don't mind, Walter he whispered. He's always afraid that nobody but himself will be able to use the monster weapons he digs up. He talks that way to everyone. Now, suppose I refresh your memory about the way back. We don't want you to get lost. I won't get lost, Eric said coldly. I have a good memory, and I know enough to perform a simple reversal of the directions on the way here. Besides, I am Eric the Espire, Eric the Eye of Mankind. I won't get lost. He was rather proud of himself as he trotted away without turning his head. Let the strangers know what you think of them, the snobs, the stuck-up bastards. But still, he felt damaged somehow, made less, as when Roy the Runner had called him a singleton before the entire band. And the last comment he had heard behind him, these primitives so damn touchy, made it no better. He crossed the dark open space, still brooding, his eyes fixed on the patch of white light ahead, his mind engaged in a completely unaccustomed examination of values. Mankind's free simplicity against the stranger's multiplicity and intricacy, mankind's knowledge of basics, the important foraging basics of day-to-day -day life, 
against the stranger knowledge of so many things and techniques he had never even heard about. Surely mankind's way was infinitely preferable, far superior. Then why did his uncle want to get mixed up with stranger politics, he wondered, as he emerged from the structure. He turned left and, passing the small entrance he had ignored before, sped for the wall which separated him from the burrows. And why did all these strangers, evidently each from a different tribe, agree in the contempt with which they held mankind? He had just turned right along the wall, on the last stretch before the doorway, when the floor shook again, jarring him out of his thoughts. He bounced up and down, frozen with fear where he stood. He was out in the open, while a monster was abroad. A monster had come into the larder again. End of chapter 4